Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Sam Delaney, and this is The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. My guest this week is music industry legend Alan McGee. Alan had a tough upbringing in Glasgow before moving to London in the early 80s and starting Creation Records, one of the biggest indie labels of all time. He made his name signing bands like Primal Screen, The Jesus and Mary Chain, and of course, Oasis. In the hedonistic Britpop years of the 90s, he became a figurehead and ringmaster, but behind the scenes, he was recovering from a breakdown after years of drink and drug abuse. These days, he's clean and sober, but as honest and outspoken as ever. I was delighted that he joined me to reflect on his childhood, career, and how he's coped mentally with the mayhem and chaos of the rock and roll industry. I hope you enjoy listening to this sometimes brutally honest chat. Alan McGee, welcome to The Reset. Hey, Sam. Thanks for joining me, mate. Um, Really great to talk to you. I suppose I'd like to start with asking you about your childhood, Alan, and how much a part of uh, dr- drinking, drugs, and just being aware of stuff like mental health you were when you were growing up? Well, I wasn't aware of anything about mental health, but I, because I was born in 1960, um, you know, it, it, there was different rules to what, People, the way people are brought up now, do you know what I mean? Um, and oh, my mum and dad didn't have a lot of money. There was a lot of frustration, Sam. Um, so they, it started with my mother battering fuck out me, my, my grandmother battering fuck out me. It was, a, there was all, they, they was all handed down, if you know what I mean, by the generations. And then when I got to about 13, I think, maybe 12, probably a bit younger. Uh, the upgrade in the violence got a lot more serious because it was my dad that was battering me. Uh, and I think because I'm not a typical Glasgow kind of guy, I'm not hard. I'm, although I am kind of hard. I mean, I don't, when I say I'm hard, I don't mean I'm violent. I mean, I'm 
you know, I've experienced a lot of fucking shit and I survived it, so I must be quite hard on my own little way. But because I was in a textbook Glasgow, my dad would identify himself as a, as a bear. Basically, I was getting fucking battered and put in hospital from about 12, 13. And at one point, my father gave me the kicking of my life, still the biggest kicking I've ever had, about 14, and put in hospital for like a night or two. Stitches all down the back of my head, that big scar on the back of my head, my old man. Uh, and then the kickings, they went on. It was proper kicking. He was jumping my head, going down the stair. Um, and then I suppose, I think I probably got some kind of trauma from that because the only way, I think it was like well going, going on well to be in a proper... I mean, I ended up in hospital after that one, but I think it could have got a lot worse. Do you know what I mean? Because the only way I could stop my dad, Sam, is I ran into the kitchen and got a kitchen knife and there was a standoff between me and my father. Um, and the only reason that I, I fucking never, never, my dad was shouting to, for me to stab him. I was 14 years old and I looked down and the, the whole kitchen floor was covered in blood because he jumped to my head so many times. And at that point, I was taken to the hospital and then I was threatened in the car. Um, my, my father going, don't you, uh, if you go to the cops, you know, you know you're know, out of the house. I was 14 and like, my head had basically been utterly kicked in. And I think that stuff did affect me. Do you know what I mean? Am I, do you have mental health issues? I think I've always had them, but I never really was honest about it, if you know what I'm trying to say, for years, yeah. do you know what I mean? I'd, I'd, I would have denied it. And so I've only been able to talk about the kickings that I got off my, 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 off my father in the last 10 years. And I, that, I'm 60, so for 50 years, I never spoke about it. Do you know what I mean? If you're from a background like yours, are you sort of almost, you're conditioned to think, I just need to take this on the chin. This is This is part of normal life. I have to accept that shit like this happens. Yeah, and I always used to laugh at it, you know. I mean, I mean, there's so many kickings like that happened. But that was a bad one, but, you know, uh, I mean, it went on for about another two or three years before I left at 16 and a half. My mum and dad just wanted me out of the house because they were, they were skint and they didn't want me as a cost. Mm. <laughs> so they fucking barred me till I left, you know what I mean? And, uh, and then I was in London by the time I was 19, and then I was really aggressive, mate. I mean, because I took that violence to other people. Do you know what I mean? When I came to London, I was always knocking people out. And, um, you know, I mean, I was always, and not, not always winning, mostly winning, but I, I got battles a few times in London. But I think that anger that I had when I was a young man was coming for that, you know what I mean? Of course, yeah. And and do you think that the the, the drinking and the drugs was a way of coping with that as well? I don't think it was a way of coping with it. I think it had, my father's an alcoholic, still an alcoholic. He's in his 80s. Um, I think, I don't know, I think, I think the, I think when I really started getting into drugs, it was the first time I'd ever felt complete. And I, I, maybe deep down I felt sad. I felt I'd been bullied, I'd been battered. I was a sad guy deep inside my head, you know what I mean? And then, I got I started using coke and ecstasy and stuff like that and speed and I suppose I, I started feeling as if I was like you know feeling what I wanted to feel like do you know what I mean I mean because I didn't feel great deep down you know what I mean mm. but you know what a lot of my 
a lot of my success is in the music game has come, Sam, from being so fucking OCD. So I don't... There's, there's a lot of positives come out of me being abused when I was a kid. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like that drive, I've still fucking got it. I've just went this weekend, Margate, Sean, Black Great, Bang, Carfest, Chris Evans, you know, Happy Mondays, Bang, here... I'm every day. I, that's what I, that, and I've lived like that for thirty-five years. And, and if I was being honest, apart from having good music taste, that's how I got successful. You know what I mean? Mm. A relentlessness. A lot. A lot of people who are alcoholics are also workaholics because it's all a, yeah. a way of no, distracting I, I, yourself I from your feelings. I mean, the upside. Yeah, the upside to me being like that is it made me it made me money. Do you know what I mean? But I agree. I mean, it's something. It's definitely the drive. I think initially I was like, I'm going to prove, I mean, every time I, I like, I, the first 10 gold, silver records I got, I sent them to my dad. But after, after a long time, it, like, do you know what I mean? It wasn't about that. It was just about, do you know what I mean? It was just about doing it myself. Do you know what I mean? You know? Mm. I remember, you know, in your book, uh, which is fantastic and and listeners should buy. You know, you say at one point that throughout these, you know, your first, what, 15 years in London, after you arrived in London in the early 80s, right, and then you were working in the music business from day one, you were taking a lot of drugs and drinking throughout that era, but it struck you quite, when you were quite a few years into it, that you'd been pretty miserable throughout that time, even when the success yeah. started to come. No, no, listen, the best thing, I mean, when I fucking had the crash, I had the crash in Los Angeles, right? Yeah. And uh, I ended up back in London by about April 94, right? And I spent about a month in my bed with the covers over my head. And everybody thought I was having a shit time. But you know what, Sam? I was actually having a good time because yeah. nobody was doing, nobody was like, <laughs> nobody wanted anything off me. It was fucking great. Do you know what I mean? You know? And uh, and I suddenly realised I've got to change my life. I can't just be this fucking mad guy that just does it for every, everybody else. I've got to I've got to grab something back for myself. You know what I mean? And and was it part of that your persona? Was there pressure then? You thought, well, this is my this is my persona. I, I, this is part of my identity. The drinking drugs are part of my identity. I can't let go of it because then maybe I'll be boring. Yeah. Did you have those feelings? Yep, I did. But actually, it was more than that. I, because I had so much success, I signed Oasis when I was off my nut. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I actually, when I got sober, I was like, what if I can't do it anymore? Yeah. What if, what if nobody likes me and nobody will sign to me? Yeah. And so I was, I was all that. Because I would, I mean, back in the day, I'm talking about 1990, right? 1991. You would sign to Alan McGee. Alan McGee was like, all these streets at the majors were like, uh, like, you know, just doing it as a job. And I was like, get in my swimming pool, come up to my penthouse, take loads of trucks, yeah, yeah. sign to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, why wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? If you were a rock and roll band, they loved me. And I was signing everybody. I mean, if you go back at that time, from the 90s onwards, I kind of signed everybody of that generation, didn't I? Do you know what I mean? Mm. And you, and so obviously, you don't, shit. That's the edge I've got over the the you know the major labels is that I've got this edge and this personality. Yeah. So yeah, you, it must have been terrifying. 
Yeah, I mean, for years, I was never asked back to anything, ever, right? And uh, so God knows what people that worked for me really thought. They must have just thought I was a fucking lunatic, yeah. I mean? But I was never asked back socially to anything. <laughs> and then I got sober, and then I was getting asked back to everything. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, people actually like me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I just assumed that nobody liked me, which they probably, they probably did quite like me, but they just probably thought, he's too much. And what was that? Was that aggression a lot of the time? Sometimes, but I don't think so. I, I think it was just like, I was just, like everybody, I was just mm. a fucking whore for it. You know what I mean? For drugs and drinking and do you know what I mean? You know, I was just like, couldn't get enough. Do you know what I mean? A lot of people don't realise, I don't think I registered it, that you actually got sober pretty soon after signing Oasis. So your profile was at yeah, that, its yeah. highest in the mid-90s and you were associated with that whole era, ladism, yeah. Britpop, all stressed yeah. up in hedonism. You were considered a ringmaster of that movement. And yet, actually, when that yeah. all hit its peak, you were stone cold sober, right? I was sober. When you were on stage at the Brits that year, presumably they were all battered, but you were yeah. sober, right? Utterly sober. I went to the gym the next day. One of the funniest things ever, you love this story, yeah, honestly, Sam. So I used to live in Bickenall Mansions, right off the, the Baker, Baker Street, right next to the the, Mar, Mar, the, the big hotel Malibon, the the landmark hotel, where, where I used to go to the gym. And it was five to seven one morning, or five to eight, it was a Tuesday morning or something, right? One of the weekdays. I'm going on up the Malibon Road to the gym, mm. And I just hear from a taxi, Oi, McGee! And it's Liam and Patsy Kenzie, right? Mm -hmm. And he's got, I think he's got her legs out the fucking taxi, <laughs> waving to me with the fucking legs. <laughs> and I'm going to the gym and they're leaving the hotel bar. And that was, I suppose, <laughs> that was supposed to be the 90s. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But hey, that's amazing. But what were your bands like? The likes of the Gallagher's or Bobby Gillespie or all these other sort of, you know, legendary hedonists of their time. How did they respond to you when you basically came out sober? Because I imagine that was much harder in those days than it would be today. Bobby, not well, to be honest, because he just thought me as a lightweight because I'd get sober, do you know what I mean? But the Gallicans were actually all right. I mean, Liam was great. Liam was always asking if I was all right. Noel, was, Noel had a brilliant conversation with me. I've never told this story. And, uh, and he took me down to when I lived in Rotherhithe in that big fuck-off flat with the swimming pool and all that shit, right? And he took me for fucking food at the hotel just along the road. I was really ill, and he just went, look, as long as you're on... And it's and it's, he's fucking told the truth, because that is what the relationship's like now, right? He went, as long as you're always at the end of a text, you know, I mean, you know whether you're well enough to ever come back. We didn't know if I could come back at that point, because I was so broken by everything with the drugs and everything. And I had about... I had about I'd be eight months off and this was a journey and he goes that'll be fine he goes he goes because you, you fucking believed and you saw it and still to this day you know I mean if I fired him a text during the show he'd be right back to me he's always been like that with me you know what I mean great guy Bobby of course had been is your oldest mate in the because you went to school with him didn't you so did the, do you feel that that was like actually a relationship that took a lot of rebuilding as a result of your sobriety well it was never the same but it was, it was, it, it don't think it ever was better. And when it was, it didn't make it worse. It just made it different. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm look, I, I, I'm not, they were, they were all addicted to heroin and cocaine and everything, you know, they were like a complete fuck up, you know what I mean? 
So I suppose when you're 30, early 30s, off your nut on loads of fucking serious drugs, but your manager, which I basically was essentially, do you know what I mean? Anyway, but their, their label guy, the guy that publishes them, he puts their records out and essentially manages a fucking band, has decided to get sober. It was a difficult one for him and a difficult one for them all, you know what I mean? In the end, after that beautiful period that you spoke about where you kind of just have this peace for probably the first time in your life, because you just like, you'd gone from a very chaotic childhood into a very chaotic adulthood. Suddenly you're in your 30s and you had this blip, this almost what sounds like blissful piece of sobriety. What made you go back in? Because eventually you did, you you jumped back into creation, didn't you? And that and that well. No, I was fine jumping back in. I've just had to see the thing about sobriety. I say this to there's a I've got a girl on my label, Cat SFX, and she struggles with, with addiction, but she's she's fine, she's sober, right? But I just said to her last week, I said, until you can accept that you are, it's okay to be, and I'm not talking in real terms, I'm talking about the way you're perceived, until you can deal with the fact that you might be the most boring person in the room to other people. If you can deal with that, you're going to be fine. Do you know what I mean? So that's, I just had to teach myself to be the most boring person in the room. And if people thought I was a cunt and, yeah. and an idiot, or fucking some kind of, you know, Namby Pamby guy, I just had to wear it. And once I did that, I actually, no, whatever anybody thought of me being sober didn't actually matter. And that's what I managed to train my head to get get around and just go, it's fine. Arguably, you know, you you ain't. But even if you're perceived to be, it's okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I would say most people aren't. You become a little bit more interesting, but it certainly builds your confidence, doesn't it? I agree. But, You've got in you're in situations when you're a young man, when you're 33, yeah. 34, that if you ain't partying, you're a fucking you're a fucking idiot, yeah. you're a square. So it's like so you've got to go, okay, maybe I'm a square. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you're right, actually. I mean, I think it must be I I got sober at 40, and I yeah. think that in many ways is much easier. Yeah. Because by that stage, all your mates have settled down. Sam, but it's not as simple as even what I'm saying. Look, I'll be really honest with you. So after a couple of years of not doing anything, I, the doctors were, I was really anxious. The doctors put me on 25 milligrams of Valium, right? And an antidepressant. I was on that for about 20 fucking three years. Do you know what I mean? And I got off all that shit about three or four years ago, mate. And uh, I was, I, I only got off that kind of, you know, the person that helped me get off that was uh, Gary Aston. I don't know if you know who that is. The Adidas guy, and he was, he was, oh, he had my back, and he was like going to me, he was going to me all like, you know, like, you should, you should interview him about addiction. He's great. And he, and, and he was, Agari was like, do you have you thrown them away? Because I'd got right off them. It took me about a year and a half, about 2016 or something, or 17, I started coming off them, and it took me about a year and a bit mm-hmm. to get off them, right? And because uh, you've got to wean yourself down on Benz's, right? And uh, and he went, have you thrown them away? And it took me two or three months to throw them away because I always thought I might need them, do you know what I mean? And then I threw them away. And literally, this is now, since about 2018, I am not on any drug. And that's the first time since 1995 that I've not been on something, do you know what I mean? Your body changes. This is a good thing for, for people that are listening to this to know. Your body fucking changes, Sam. I used to be, when I was a young guy, well, young 40, right? I'd have 
three coffees and a twitch, I actually could have 20 coffees and I fucking don't twitch. My body's changed. Do you know what I mean? I think it's just old. <laughs> you did say in the book that you did, um, I don't know how many years into being sober, you did relapse for a couple of years. What what was that like? How did that come about? Well, my daughter was about one or two. It was about 2002 or three. And... Uh, I was with Charlie, my little girl, out, and I was in the Caribbean, and it was like, it was in the two weeks between the end of Christmas and the and the and just after New Year. It was in that time, so it was probably around, I don't know, just before between the two weeks. It was probably about the twenty eighth of December or something, and it was about hundred degrees, and I was out in the lawn playing with my wee girl. It was a two or three, and I said to my wife, I said, "Oh." Um, I said because she does. She, I mean, she she's she doesn't know anything about addiction or anything. She's not an addict. And uh, and I said, I said, oh, um, like you know, I'd really love a fucking a glass of wine. And she went, you'll be able to deal with that. So after nine years of not touching drink or drugs, right, I got sober in ninety four. So she'd only known you sober. Yeah, yeah, she had. She'd only known you sober. Yeah, yeah, she had right. because I got together with her January ninety five, right. Uh, I met her at a slow dive record launch for what it's worth. Right? So, and anyway, so she went, you could deal with that. And I suppose she'd seen me deal with a lot of stuff in the 90s. So why wouldn't you think this guy can deal with half a glass of wine? Anyway, three months later, I have the glass of wine. This is what happened to him. I have the glass of wine. And halfway through the glass of wine, right, the, the switch goes on and it's like, I remember what rock and roll is. <laughs> it was like, oh. so I was like, so I was like, oh, okay. the next night, can I have like an extra half glass of wine? Yes. So there was one and a half glasses of wine. Three months later, mate, it was two bottles of wine. Six months later, it was four bottles of wine a day. And it went on for a couple of years. And then I saw a, don't know how I managed to turn it around, but I just was like, I just decided I've got to stop, and I did manage to stop. I think you know what it was. I disgusted myself because I was becoming a cunt. I was being a snide cunt to people, and I thought you're not actually a bad guy. You're so pissed you're being a cunt. Stop it! And I did actually manage to. Yeah. You know what I mean? And did you, did you ever do twelve steps or anything like that? I went three or four times. When I first got the drugs, it got off the drugs in '94. I went to the the, the Peckham, you all of us remember the Peckham AA meeting. So I rock up this wee guy that's fucking come off drugs, feels fucking shit. Arguably, he's had some sort of nervous breakdown, and I'm sitting with about ten people in a circle, and this guy's talking about like fucking rape, pillage, and murder in Brixton, right? A wee white guy, right? But he was like fucking all the shit that he's been up to. And I just was like, I'm not like that. I, I just wanted to be Keith fucking Richards or Andrew Lugo. Hold on, do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm not mm. I'm not out to fucking use shotguns on people, do you know what I mean? So I kind of, yeah. maybe a bad meeting to go because I had no empathy yeah, with anybody. Pe- I was just Peckham a was like, a bold, I've got to say, 
Peckham in the mid nineties <laughs> is a bold fucking choice for your first day, eh, mate? <laughs> I am Scottish. You know, I mean, it wasn't freaked out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't I freaked out that I'm going to get mugged. It wasn't as basic as that. But once I got there, yeah. some guy talking about he raped a woman. Fuck off. You're just a cunt. I don't want him. Yeah. Whether you're a drink of drugs, none of that's good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Fucking hell. So nowadays, I mean, do you have people who you talk to? Do you have a therapist? How do you deal with the stuff? Well, I deal with myself, just about. But occasionally, if I'm frustrated, you know, I've got a... I mean, some of it's... I've got two kids. One of my kids is it's a great relationship, the daughter. She's brilliant for the second marriage. And, and the son, all the shenanigans, and with me and the mother and the drugs and everything, it's a very damaged relationship, do you know what I mean, with me and the kid. Unfortunately, he's got influence by it all, do you know what I mean? So it is what it is. So it's even today, we're still living that fucking problem, do you know what I mean? You know? But I've got one guy that I've, if I've got, I've been, if I'm having problems in that zone, which I'm currently actually, um, I'll talk to this big guy, Jerry Knotts, who's like a massive NAA guy in Glasgow, but he's just my pal. And I will talk, but I don't. I don't do the right. meetings. I mean, I, listen. I I have zero problem with anybody going to an AA meeting if it works for you. Rock and fucking roll. Just doesn't work for me, mate. You know what I mean? But you, when you first got uh, sober, you, you went into rehab, didn't you? So you spoke to therapists yeah. then, and did that? Was that the stuff where you started to unpack your childhood? Not even then. Not even then, man. I only. Right. I tell you, I wrote a blog for the. Huffington Post about 10 years ago and I went I like and I told the truth and I said look I mean, the way I was abused I was a kid you know with my father partner and put me in hospital and made me want to achieve hi that's what happened that's what it is and my dad went mental because I told the truth <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it just is what it fucking is man you know but with your dad I mean I'm interested in forgiveness I mean you know I know that he, you know he ended up Living with you, he helped yeah. you. At, at, you know, at, at times when you were getting sober, and, and he and he sort of worked for the company at times, yeah. didn't he? And you, you really, you looked up, you looked after him, and you remained close in, in adulthood. That it's quite interesting that some people, when they've been abused by their parents, just reject them forever. We don't really go on, Sam. Yeah, because he, he married into a new family. He's got three families. All the wives die, my father, and uh, a. What happened was that a uh, the daughter of the second marriage sold stories to the newspapers about me, and then me and him fell out over that. I just got fed up with getting fucking sold out, basically. Do you know what I mean? I might be related to him, but I don't like him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that no, is interesting because in the book you tell stories about you know about him like replacing the booze in a bottle with weak tea to trick you. Yeah, that's a true story, Sam. Because what happened was that uh, it was Noel was round, right? And I said, and he know we wanted a drink. He was when we were trying to mix, definitely maybe, and we couldn't get the mixes right. And I went, "There's Jack Daniels in that that drawer," and he gets the Jack Daniels out, <laughs> and he opens it. And no, it's not me that does it; it's Noel that does it. And Noel slugs the fucking Jack Daniels, and he fucking spat it out. And he goes, "What the fuck is that?" And my dad goes, "Oh, I thought it was going to be him. His tea." <laughs> Before we wrap it up. You might have touched me already, but I do usually ask people when you is there a moment like a rock bottom moment or a bleakest moment where if ever you're thinking about if ever you're tempted or you're just reflecting on on how bad things got, is there a moment that 
that that sticks out in your head and you think that was that's a person I don't want to be anymore. Uh, this is as simple as that. I, I, I was saying that again. I was saying it to that girl last week. You know, there's struggling with it a bit. I said, as long as you can just stay sober, everything's okay. Ultimately, everything is achievable. I said, but the minute you have that, you start getting back on the booze. If you've got real issues, it's not that your music career is going to fall to bits. Your life's going to fucking fall to bits. And I've watched, like, you know, it's primal scream. Think how many people are dead around that band. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's heavy. Do you know what I mean? It's that that lifestyle takes its toll. You know what I mean? And now you're obviously still driven, and you're still extremely busy. But do you try to find? Are you more conscious of finding time to basically rest? Yes and no. I mean. I mean, I've just, you know, I mean, I just seem to attract, I mean, I've just, there's a, there's a, there's a very famous, say, uh, Liverpool um, drinking drugs fucking casually that wants to, me to come their manager. And you know some of the people I manage, Sean, Kyle, do you know what I mean? I mean, do we, do we need to keep going on? Well, well, I keep, they're all of a certain type of fucking quite a mad people, you know what I mean? And I seem to attract certain people but then again I don't know I mean I feel if I like the music I'll sign you John. well listen mate I really appreciate you being so honest and open with us here hopefully because it really helps lots of people I think bye right, mate see you soon there you go, Alan McGee. It's mad to think that when Oasis were in their pomp and he was a tabloid regular as their record company boss, he was sober and still struggling to recover from all of his addictions that had come before. I really respect anyone who's managed to get sober and stay that way while surrounded by people who are still bang at it. A lot of people get in touch and ask me, how can you maintain your personality and social life after you get sober? Well, put it this way, if Alan McGee can do it while hanging out with Oasis in the 90s, then anyone can fucking do it. Anyway, thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to the pod and weekly newsletter at samdelaney.substack.com. Cheers. And remember, until next time, don't let the dickheads get you down. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.